So happy Father's Day to everyone. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here with us. Uh, we've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and this morning we'll be uh, towards the end or at the end of chapter 3. So let's ask the Lord to help us as we begin. Father, and what a joy to call you Father on this day because of the work of your Son. Father, my soul was pulsating at the thought that Jesus was in the tomb on Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, the very moment the requirement was met, he burst forth and changed everything. And so I pray that you would, as we consider the focus of this particular passage, you would cause our hearts to be overwhelmed by the fullness of the reality of what Jesus has accomplished. So to that end, would you, by the power of your Spirit, Would you increase our confidence in the redemption that has been provided for us by Jesus? And would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold more fully than we ever have before this morning the greatness of the glory of Jesus? To that end, please lead us, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed that our culture has a rather strange fascination with death. Horror movies and zombie shows and related merchandise, those revenues total in the billions of dollars. Halloween itself has moved into the number two slot in terms of total gross revenues behind only Christmas, of course. The question is, why? What's, what's going on here with respect to death and our culture? I think if, if we try to get underneath it to understand the phenomenon, the, the, the primary motivator is fear. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 and verse 15 tells us that every human at some level apart from Christ is a slave to the fear of death. Therefore, we like to be able to tame or in some way to manage our fears. So, As you sit here this morning, what, what do you think about? death. If you're younger, you may not think about it a whole lot at all. It seems so far off. It's not on the radar screen at all. If you're, if you're older, you may think about it quite a bit as you reflect on your life and think about the present and look forward to the future. But whether we simply ignore or attempt to ignore the inevitability of death 
whether we try to embrace death, whether we try to laugh at death, try to control it, or even to celebrate it. The reality of death is something that every single one of us must face sooner or later. Now, what most pastors will tell you, and this certainly seems to be the case with the preacher in Ecclesiastes, is that there are also some benefits to thinking about death. Thinking about death often focuses people's minds more clearly on reality in a way that that very few other things can. People are often much more open to hearing the gospel message at a funeral than they are at just about any other time of their lives. That's why a lot of pastors prefer to preach messages at funerals or memorial services rather than even at weddings. Now, of course, both of those are a glorious opportunity to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in today's passage, the preacher of Ecclesiastes takes up two issues, namely sin and death. His purpose is to get his hearers to think clearly about reality under the sun or life on this earth and to subtly get us to begin to long for another reality where the sun that is in our galaxy becomes utterly unnecessary because of the blazing brightness of the glory of God's own sun which will be on full display in another world. Our passage this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. So then, hear the word of our Father and our God. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Lord, please lead us now then. By the power of your Spirit, I ask, care for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the past few weeks as we've waded into the deeper waters of Ecclesiastes, we have seen and we have felt 
a little bit of the weight of the wrestlings as we've walked with Solomon through the, the frustrating and the, the futile way the world works as he observes it. Zach Eswine describes where we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes. He says, The preacher has been walking us through the dark and creepy basement of the fallen world with his flashlight. It would seem that if anybody could come to the conclusion that the sky is falling, it would be the preacher. But the preacher doesn't panic. He hates it. He grieves it. He declares this world ruthless and ugly and empty. But the preacher believes that God has not left the mess, but remains here with us. So in light of the full revelation of the Old Testament and the New, my goal this morning is simply to to flip on the lights in the basement cellar, that is to open the shutters so that the light of the glory of the gospel will illumine this dark world in a way that that elevates our hope and edifies our souls. Our passage breaks into two straightforward themes. First, in verses 16 through 17, we see that sin or evil or wickedness, to use the preacher's word, leaves us longing for righteousness. And for some to deal with, for someone to deal with the, the mess that this wickedness creates. In verses 18 through 22, we will focus on the fact that death leaves us longing for resurrection. And I think it's this very hope of resurrection that actually fuels the preacher's conclusions about the way that we are to live, but, but we'll connect those dots in, in a little bit. If we wanted to summarize things about as tightly as we could say it, in terms of the essence of the message, we could describe it this way. Sin and death cause us to long for someone who can conquer both. And that's exactly what we'll see in the person of Jesus. So let's begin with our first section then. As many of you are aware, this has been a tough week for our town. Uh, Some of you may have heard of the loss of a young boy and his father and and the tragic circumstances surrounding their deaths. We've witnessed the horror of this broken world rather rather up close and personal. I'm wondering what, what life experiences you may have endured or may be enduring at the moment that causes you not just to hope that there will be a resurrection one day, but causes you at the core of your being to long for a place where sin is no more, basking in the glory of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There are things so bad in this world that it causes us to yearn for another place. For those of us that are in Jesus, that day, that day is coming. 
So if we, if we carry Eswine's analogy through, here in this section, Solomon shines his flashlight on, on two things that catch his attention in this creepy basement of the fallen world. First, in verse 16, he observes wickedness in the place of justice and wickedness in the place of righteousness. Now, in context here, in the original, it becomes clear that he's likely thinking of two things. One, the courtroom, and two, the temple. Two places or two institutions where righteousness should reign. But this is precisely where we see the pervasiveness of sin under the sun. Because if there is evil found in the courts of the law, if there is evil found in the temple or today in the church, both institutions committed to uprightness, but if sin can be there, then sin can permeate any human institution. Sin can permeate any human practice, and sin can permeate any human heart. So Solomon has chosen wisely his two examples, and that should be no surprise. There is a certain revulsion, even in our day, for for judges who take bribes or for pastors or priests who profane God's name by their actions. More importantly, we know that there are two types of evil. These are two types of evil specifically that God hates himself with a holy passion. In Deuteronomy 10, the Lord once described himself in this way, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality, nor take a bribe. Or in the New Testament, when the Lord Lord of glory Himself came to earth and walked into His temple, the very first thing He did was drive out wickedness. In Matthew 21, Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. I mean, even today we see judicial activism pressing social agendas, and we see preachers, in particular, maybe prosperity preachers are the, are the most glaring example of pastors who pray on their people. But what is surprising about these conclusions in terms of the corruption of sin that Solomon observes is that they don't lead him to despair. So the question is, why not? How is this possible? The way it's possible is because he he looks, verse 17, he looks outside of this present world for his Hope. He looks forward to a day when God will judge everyone, the righteous and the wicked, to bring about ultimate justice. Verse 17, I said in my heart, 
God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, if you back up to the poem and the beginning of chapter 3 that Ben led us through with a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plan, a time to etc., 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 I think this might be a little bit of a wordplay down here from the preacher. In other words, yes, there will be a time for every behavior and every action. And there will be a time for judgment for every behavior and every action, righteous or unrighteous. And that brings peace to Solomon, knowing that there will be a day when all unrighteousness is rectified. Now, if we kind of come along Solomon and rejoice also or hope in this reality, we also need to be sober-minded as we consider these things. Of all people on earth, as believers, we understand that sin and wickedness and evil is not, not just a problem out there, not just a problem here, but it's a problem all the way inside. The pervasiveness of the darkness that's out there and the pervasiveness of the darkness in here have what effect on us? Do they not cause us to long for a righteousness, not our own, but a righteousness that comes through and only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning as we consider these things, let's let the the flashlight of Ecclesiastes, according to Zach Eswine, and the spotlight of the gospel, according to the New Testament, illumine our hearts so that we might rejoice all the more in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We may never have the opportunity to accept cash bribes from someone specifically in order to change a verdict. But think about how we deal with sin. Sometimes we try to negotiate or even to bribe our own flesh by choosing lesser sins, sins that by our own judgment we believe wouldn't be quite as bad to commit. For example, think of a married man who maybe he struggles to walk in integrity or maybe he's weak in terms of self-control or, or maybe he just simply thinks that he's gotten a raw deal but but even despite these things he would never ever 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 consider an affair with another woman but he may be willing to negotiate with sin he may be willing to bribe his mind into rationalizing that looking at explicit pictures on his phone for example is somehow okay despite the explicit words of Jesus in the sermon on the mount I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you see how the bribing goes? Or maybe there's a woman who would never think of missing church. She's always in 
growth group and, and extremely diligent in her quiet times because she wants to prioritize God above everything else in her life. But her struggle is that there are a hundred other smaller idols from from food to fear of man, from self-righteousness to self-pity that dominate her thoughts as she goes about the day. So the reality is, in some form or fashion, we're all guilty. The question is, verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Solomon seems to be encouraged by that. Does that sound encouraging to you? But the truth of the matter is that we want our sin to be judged. Because it's only ever judged in two places. The cross of Calvary or in hell forever. You want your sin judged on the cross so that you can experience the righteousness that is freely given to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because that's the good news of the gospel. Consider then, if, if just the mere thought of perfect judgment brought Solomon hope in this world, how much more the, the debt canceling, the sin expiating, the guilt propitiating, the devil conquering, the righteousness transferring, the, the holiness vindicating, the glory magnifying cross of Christ. How much more can the cross move us to joy? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Or on this Father's Day, as you think perhaps about the delight that you have in your own children, Consider these words from 1 John 4. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So on this very morning, no matter what is troubling your soul, even if this day, Father's Day, happens to be a broken-hearted day for you, know this. If you've expressed faith in Jesus Christ, then you now have God for your Father forever. And that is news that changes everything. The good news of the gospel is that despite the pervasiveness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin out there and the the pervasiveness of sin in here, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Indeed, sin and death cause us to long for someone who can and has conquered both. 
In addition to the pervasiveness of sin, the second rather maddening mystery under the sun that Solomon addresses is, in fact, the inevitability of death. Verses 18 through 21. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now notice in these verses that that Solomon kind of intermixes assessment with his observations. He makes it clear in verse 18 that with respect to death in this life, as we consider what God might be doing here, at least part of God's plan seems to be to humble mankind, to offer a reminder that he is a creature. Human beings have a tendency to think of ourselves more more highly than we ought. And in some sense, this makes sense, given the nobility and the, frankly, the miracle of our calling to walk around on earth, imaging the God of the universe and reflecting his glory to other people. And yet, when we factor in the corruption of our hearts and our relentless attempts to, to usurp his authority you begin to understand why God may feel like He needs to remind us of our creatureliness. On this side of the dividing line of God and creature is everything. (laughs) On this side of the dividing line is God alone. And so, in that sense, we fall on the same side as beasts. We are creatures just like they are all of whom must submit to death. Because death has a way of humbling people. The preacher's argument is basically no one, no one can escape death. Just think of the most beautiful Egyptian princess or the most powerful ancient Egyptian ruler adorned in gold, but below the lid of the sarcophagus are just rotting corpses. Death like God shows no partiality. Kings and possums ultimately suffer the same fate. One might be victorious in war, The other might be roadkill. But they meet the same end eventually. The futility of it all kind of overwhelms Solomon here. So he kind of reprises language from the very beginning of the Old Testament, from Genesis, and he says, All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows what happens next, up or down or away. 
Where does our spirit actually go after death? Who, who knows? You can almost kind of just picture him slumping as he considers these things. But this is precisely where the passage gets extremely interesting. Again, you would think that the observations of the preacher about death would lead him to despair in light of the inevitability of death. But quite the opposite is true. He concludes that in light of death and the coming judgment, which he mentioned earlier, the right response is to go about our business in this world, not with groaning, but with joy. So I saw, verse 22, that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, Life is just a dirty trick from nothingness to nothingness. The question is, is that true? How can his conclusion in verse 22 be the right conclusion? In light of the two things that he's just mentioned, sin and death, how is it that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot? How does that make sense? Why is that a coherent conclusion? See, I think in our passage, there is a subtlety, kind of a secret passage to joy that that Solomon sees here and 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 it can bring us joy too if we have eyes to see it as well Solomon saw that the pervasiveness pervasiveness of sin in this world does not lead to meaninglessness because it creates in us a longing for a perfect justice that will be realized after death What he saw is that the full testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, or in his case, from Genesis to Ecclesiastes, confirms that there is more to existence than just life under the sun. And this knowledge brought him tremendous peace. In a similar way, the inevitability of death creates in us a longing for resurrection. Perfect justice and ultimate judgment is not possible without resurrection. The reason we can go about our lot in this world with joy, despite the sentence of death that hangs over all of our heads, is because of the promise of life after death, which also awaits us. This passage concludes with with a question that that I think in context is, is meant to be rhetorical. Who can bring him, that is man, to see what is after him? But do you see that it proves my point? There is longing embedded in the question itself. 
The reality of resurrection makes life in this world under the sun eternally significant. It's the furthest thing from meaningless. In light of the reality of resurrection, life becomes very serious, very serious for both the wicked and for the righteous. For the unrepentant sinner, life is seriously regrettable. But for the one who puts their faith in Jesus, as they seek to glorify God in their lot, to use the words of the preacher, life becomes seriously joyful. Earlier we brought in 1 John 4, rejoicing in the reality that God sent his only son to earth that we might live through him. But what does that mean actually? How do we think about this? Why is that good news that leads to joy? That's why it explains again. What is it we believe God is trying to do for us by sending us his son? How would you answer that question? He makes a very interesting insight. He says, Jesus did not come to give us an escape from our lot, misuse our lot, or make our lot our God. Jesus cut wood, ate food, lived in a family, and had a hometown. When Jesus came to redeem us, he did so not by bypassing the ordinary human life, but by recovering it. What makes the gospel so miraculous is that the ordinary life that Jesus came to recover included submitting himself to the wickedness of men and even to death itself. We just sang these words. You have omnipotent power laying on the ground, allowing men to nail his hands and his feet to a cross so that he might save them from their sins and save us as well. Submitting himself to the sin of men and even to death, the very two things that Solomon is pointing out in this particular passage. In doing so, he ultimately fulfilled the longings that are created by these two realities, namely sin and death. He is the one who possesses ultimate and pure and perfect righteousness, and he alone has conquered death. He's redeemed us from the curse through which these two realities came. On this Father's Day, consider the power of the text that also served as our call to worship. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you now have God for your Father 
forever. The extraordinary love of the Father is what made it possible for Jesus to live an ordinary life through which our ordinary lives become extraordinary because we become sons of God through faith. As imperfect as this life often is, it is the lot that God has given us. This world, this work, this life, this wife, these children, these friends, this church, this pain, these people, this reality, this is our lot. Jesus showed us that it is possible to glorify God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the most extraordinary way, even in the most ordinary of circumstances. The reality of the cross and the future hope of resurrection makes this life a joyful life, despite its pain, even while we wait for the one who promised He could bring us to the eternal joy that comes after this life. Until that day, these are the words he left us to strengthen us. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This reality of our resurrection, rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, is the hope that frees us to find joy in this life, whatever our lot may be. Would you pray with me? Father, would you, would you please help us to think clearly about what you are showing us in this world and about ourselves. But ultimately, I pray that right now your spirit would do a work in us that would drive out fear because of our confidence in the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus to make us pure. He has conquered the world. He has conquered sin and he has conquered death. So let us now exalt in all that he has accomplished, we ask in his name. Amen.